This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Hello, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us again. This is the week of the Republican National Convention. And things got off to a pretty strong start, I think, on Monday night. It's kind of interesting. I'm going to go back to Monday night because I want to talk about something in particular that really corresponds to a lot of what Maximo Alvarez had to say. What a star that man is. I don't know if you had the chance to listen to his pretty short speech at the RNC, but he is a Cuban immigrant. He came to the United States, I think, at the age of 13. And boy, All he needed was that six minutes in order to drop a nuclear bomb of truth about communism, having lived under it and having experienced what he experienced. And I want to play some of the clips from that particular speech. But this just irritates me so much. It doesn't surprise me anymore, but it irritates me. Every time we come along to something that is impressive and goes back to really underscore the importance of American values, you can be sure that AP will mess it up, the Associated Press. They had a couple of main stories having to do with the Republican convention. There's no mention of Maximo Alvarez. Not at all. Let's see. One of them was about Trump, Trump and more Trump. Never one to shy away from the spotlight. Trump showed he'll be omnipresent at the convention. Yeah, because you certainly wouldn't want to put forward your nominee because that's why you're there in the first place, because you're going to have a presidential election. I mean, maybe you could retort by saying, well, the DNC couldn't very well put Joe Biden front and center every single night because they'd be afraid of what he would accidentally say. I mean, that's just being true, isn't it? They don't know what Joe's going to say. They have no idea what Joe's going to say. Lying dog face pony soldiers. You know, maybe he'll look into the camera and insult everybody and they'll go, Joe, 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 come back. You know, this guy is just, he's a loose cannon. So you could go down that road, but they never mention Maximo Alvarez. And there's another story. Republican convention showcases rising stars, dark warnings. It's all very pejorative. It's all very insulting. Scrambling to find a message that sticks. Trump's team tried out multiple themes and tactics over the course of the night. Okay. Yeah, that's all there was. And I'm looking in vain. Did you mention Maximo Alvarez? Did you mention Maximo Alvarez? Oh, no, you didn't. Well, why would you, AP? Because I think of everybody who was featured on Monday, Maximo Alvarez was the best one. They were all good. They were all good to varying degrees. And I loved listening to all of the different people who talked, but this one stood out. Why? because of the existential threat that is being posed to the United States at the moment in the guise of socialism and communism. And don't get, you know, waylaid by this idea that it's just not that bad. It is that bad. And the reason we know it's that bad is because we know how this story has played out in the last 100 years. We have ample opportunity to pick up books or to watch videos or to watch movies or read memoirs of various types to know exactly how this story ends. And it never ends well. So I want to play a little bit of Maximo Alvarez's speech because I have more to say on this whole subject of communism. But he is the founder of Sunshine Gasoline and just... 
such a strong speaker talking about what's going on in the United States right now. He mentions the fact that the other side, as he says, the Democrats, he accuses of only wanting power for themselves, not power for the people, but the Cuban people who escaped communism under Fidel Castro saw things differently. Listen to cut one. I'm speaking to you today because I have seen people like this before. I've seen movements like this before. I've seen ideas like this before. And I am here to tell you, we cannot let them take over our country. I heard the promises of Fidel Castro, and I can never forget all those who grew up around me, who looked like me, who suffered and starved and died because they believed those empty promises. They swallow the communist poison pill. If you have a chance, go to the Freedom Tower in Miami. Stop and listen. You can still hear the sounds of those broken promises. It is the sound of waves in the ocean carrying families clinging to pieces of wood. Families with children who can't swim, but willing to risk everything to reach this blessed land. It is the sound of tears hitting the paper of an application to become an American citizen. That's very gripping. It really is. You know, it reminded me when he was making reference to people in Cuba who were so desperate to get to the United States that they cling to pieces of wood and these small little boats. And, you know, it was no no guarantee that they were going to make it alive. And I thought about what people said during 9-11 when they looked at those people who were leaping from the 98th floor of the World Trade Center as the towers were burning. And they said, how bad is it up there? that jumping was the better option. And you could apply that to this situation. How bad was it in Cuba that these people would rather get into tiny little boats and risk being lost at sea just to escape it? Do any of these activists or rioters or looters or hangers on or Democrat drones in the streets of our cities in Kenosha or Portland or Seattle or anywhere else, do they ever stop and ask that question? How bad must it have been in Cuba for people to risk their lives to get in these tiny boats in order to get to the United States? What was it that went on there that was so horrific? Oh, I don't know, but don't you like my Che Guevara t-shirt? It's so cool. My favorite celebrity wears one. That's about as deep as it goes, which is exactly why AP doesn't want kids and younger generations of Americans who don't remember communism to hear a speech like this. But I'm going to play more of it because here Maximo Alvarez describes those Cubans who once believed the empty promises. This is cut to most heard and liked the promises, but soon after they experienced the reality. Look at them. Listen to them. Learn the truth. Those false promises spread the wealth, free education, free health care, defund the police, trust the socialist state more than your family and your community. They don't sound radical to my ears. They sound familiar. And Fidel Castro was asked if he was a communist. He said he was a Roman Catholic. He knew he had to hide the truth. But the country I was born in is gone, totally destroyed. When I watch the news in Seattle, Chicago, Portland, and other cities, when I see the history being rewritten, when I hear the promises, I've heard echoes, I've hear echoes of the former life I never wanted to hear again. I see shadows I thought I had outrun. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Castro, are you a communist? No, I'm a Catholic. Okay. 
Well, what about liberation theology? What about the Marxist roots of liberation theology in the Roman Catholic Church? You know, this is the problem. Joe Biden's faith. Now, I'm not saying that Biden is a committed communist or a member of the Communist Party secretly or anything like that, but he's sure willing to oversee a party moving in that direction, isn't he? A party that's already embraced socialists like Bernie Sanders and socialists like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar, right? Who's, you know, talking about all these kinds of things and anti-Semitism and Look at all that this party is embracing and you see exactly where it's headed. And then listen to what Maximo Alvarez says about what America means to him. This is so moving. Listen to cut three. My parents only wanted one person to decide my fate, me. Not some party member, not some government official, not some bureaucrat. In America, I would decide my own future. I am so grateful to America the place where I was able to build my American dream through hard work and determination. President Trump knows that the American story was written by people just like you and I who love our country and take risks to build a future for our families and neighbors. I may be a Cuban born, but I am 100% American. This is the greatest country in the world. And I said this before. If I gave away everything that I have today, it would not equal 1% of what I was given when I came to this great country of ours. The gift of freedom. Oh, it's so hard not to cry at that. I've heard it several times now, but it's really hard not to cry. You are a real American, Maximo Alvarez. You really are. And you represent so many other people who fled here knowing this is the greatest country in the world and knowing that you would receive freedom and opportunity here. And to be in this country and to see Americans try to take it away from other Americans, not going to happen. Not going to happen by the grace of God. We're going to come back. There's more to come on Janet Matt for today. Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child, and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural-born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn. Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Mefford today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. One ultrasound is just $28 and every gift helps. To donate, please call now 855-402-BABY. That's 855 855- 
402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved, and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us. We're talking communism. And we have to. We have to talk about communism. And it's interesting to see how the liberal media is responding to some of what has been discussed already during the course of the RNC. Maximo Alvarez, who is the founder of Sunshine Gasoline distributors spoke on Monday night, but I wanted to go back and listen to some of what he had to say because the mainstream media really didn't want you to hear what he had to say. This is a Cuban immigrant who came to the United States with his parents when he was 13, lived under Castro, heard the empty promises, heard the lie upon lie upon lie. Oh, Fidel Castro, I'm not a communist. I'm a Catholic. Okay, no worries here. As long as you're a Catholic, that means you can't be a communist. You know, listen to this man, because these survivors of communist regimes, in my mind, are the people who ought to be platformed at the very top of every discussion about the future of America. We need to hear these testimonies, folks, again and again and again. And I am so grateful that this man was willing to stand up and say what he said, because there were millions of us who needed to hear it. Even if we already know it, even if we already agree with him, we need to hear it. But more than that, the millions of Americans who haven't a clue about communism needed to hear it. And I thought it was worth rebroadcasting. So if you have not had the opportunity to hear it, you can hear it for yourself and you can pass it along to others because everybody needs to hear this. And especially these young people who are so enamored with this socialist utopia idea and these these people have no idea what's to come. I want to play one more cut from Maximo Alvarez speaking at the RNC because this is a battle that Americans have to fight if we are to save our country. Listen to cut four. Right now, it is up to us to decide our fate and to choose freedom over oppression. President Trump, he's fighting the forces of anarchy and communism. And I know he will continue to do just that. And what about his opponent and the rest of the DC swamp? I have no doubt they will hand the country over to those dangerous forces. You and I will decide. And here's what I've decided. My decision is very easy. I choose President Trump because I choose America. I choose freedom. I still hear my dad. There is no other place to go. Thank you. I made a good Lord. Bless America. Couldn't have said it better. There's nowhere else to go. And that's why you stay and you fight, not only because of the history and the legacy of the United States as being a beacon of hope and freedom for people from all over the world, refugees from communist countries like Maximo Alvarez, but also because we have children and we have grandchildren and we have a reason to preserve this nation as it was handed down to us because there is nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to go. Where would you go? 
Where would you go? Sure, you could come up with some other small country name. Oh, maybe we could go to some Caribbean island. Maybe we could go over here somewhere in Asia or what have you. Really? Are you going to escape the clutches of communism in most places in the globe? Or maybe you could select a nice country where you could live under Sharia law. That would be another form of totalitarianism. Not that enjoyable, would it be? That's why you have people from all over the world wanting to come here. And that's why you see all of these people who are embracing socialism, not leaving. You know, if you love it so much, move to North Korea, AOC. She's not doing that. Why is she not doing that? Because this is the mindset. You've got to destroy. You've got to destroy. You've got to destroy. This brings me to my next point. When I look and see some of the footage of what I'm seeing in Kenosha, for example, or these these thugs who are going into restaurants and ordering white people to put up their fists in a solidarity with black power and all the, I mean, just the harassment and the, the, the destroying of businesses and killing people and kicking people in the head and the blood and the, you know, all of this is just destroying. And I feel like taking some of these younger kids aside and saying, what are you going to get that's better? How do you think this all ends? You think you're going to get into some kind of wonderful global paradise that you had to achieve like this? What do you think life is going to be like on the other side of the American dream? Well, let me give you a taste of what it's like. Because I dug up this final report to the National Council for Soviet and East European Research. This was a report that came out on the quality of life in the Soviet Union. This was dated 1984, November of 1984. The contractor was the Research Foundation of the City University of New York on behalf of Queens College. So this is a very interesting report. You can read it all. It's about 50 pages long if you want to look it up online. But this is from the executive summary. And I think it's instructive for people to hear at least a portion of this. So if you are one of those people who somehow thinks that your wonderful commie paradise is going to turn out differently this time than it ever did in Cuba or the Soviet Union, I, I may want to disabuse you of your notion that your life is going to get better. Here's an example. While the Soviet Union has long trumpeted the superiority of its economic system, the Soviet standard of living is still far below prevailing Western and East European levels. In 1976, for example, the Soviet standard of living was one third the American level and somewhat less than half the level of France and West Germany. The relatively low standard of living in the Soviet Union can be traced to the fact that the Soviet government spends a considerably smaller share of its GNP on consumption than most West and East European nations. The Soviet Union has traditionally neglected its consumer sector, and this has resulted in chronic shortages of consumer goods and services and food supplies. Fantastic. So you can go to your local restaurant. There won't be any food. Let me tell you something. I've talked before about having visited the Soviet Union as a Russian student in high school. I studied Russian in high school and college. Went to the USSR. You have to stand in line for a long time. They're not kidding. You have to stand in line for a long time to get food. And we did have the experience of standing in line for food. And by the time we got to the front of the line, they had run out. They're not kidding about this. Moreover, they say Soviet wage scales require consumers to devote about two-thirds of their earnings to basic necessities, such as food and clothing. Now, let me ask you, little activist on the streets of Portland, are you spending two-thirds of your earnings on food and clothing? I would bet you're not. 
Maybe your dad and mom are funding your activism on the streets and you're living in the basement rent free, but you're not going to have such a good time under communism. Thus, not only is the Soviet standard of living relatively low as compared to the West, but Soviet consumption patterns are also quite backward and resemble those of developing nations more closely than industrialized nations. Because the Soviet Union maintains a shortage economy where consumption is restricted in favor of investment, Soviet consumers often find it difficult to purchase the items they want, regardless of their disposable income. That sounds like fun. Social services such as health care and education are provided ostensibly free by the state, but through taxes and other hidden charges, Soviet consumers pay for almost half of all free services. They go on to say, like any other nation, the Soviet Union contains many poor people, but the Soviet poverty sector is surprisingly large, given the Soviet government's concern with its image as a socialist welfare state. Using Soviet estimates of minimum family income requirements, it appears that the average family in 1965 existed in a state of poverty. The average family existed in a state of poverty. A large number of surveys conducted during the 1960s revealed that as many as a quarter or a third of the urban working class lived below the poverty line. And since rural wages are about 10 percent lower than urban wages and rural inhabitants account for about 35 percent of the Soviet population, the total number of poor people in the Soviet Union was perhaps 40 percent of the entire population. Communism will bring everybody down. It does not lift you up into some sort of one percent nirvana dum-dums on the streets. You're not going to get a better life under communism. You're going to get more poverty under communism. You're going to lose your freedom. You're going to lose your way of life. Are you insane? According to Soviet ideology, the socialist economic system should put an end to the alienation of labor in poor working conditions. However, Aside from the low wages paid to most Soviet workers, Soviet working conditions leave much to be desired, according to even Soviet sources. So your workplace isn't going to be a nirvana either. One of the Soviet Union's most impressive consumer achievements has been the creation of 2.2 million housing units per year since 1957. Despite this tremendous amount of construction, though, the demand for new housing far exceeds supply. Soviet citizens still suffer from the poorest housing conditions in any industrialized nation, primarily because so many families do not have private apartments. Ooh, wait a minute. That's another sign of communist living. You don't have private apartments. The wait for a new apartment may last up to 10 years or more if one is not sponsored by an influential organization or cannot find another family willing to engage in a housing exchange. Moreover, housing has become increasingly stratified in the Soviet Union and identifiable housing classes have emerged. Fancy that. What about health care? Health care in the Soviet Union is also highly stratified and the best medical care is typically reserved for a privileged few privileged view. Does that sound like equality to you? The Soviet medical system is divided into a series of networks which serve different segments of the population according to one's position in Soviet society. And by the way, it's plagued by chronic shortages of most healthcare materials. This is your glorious future, activists in the streets. I hope you're enjoying setting fires and destroying people's businesses that they built, despite what former President Obama would say. Those people built those businesses. Those people who are contributing to our economy are the ones who are making America great because they are working and earning and saving and raising families and making America a place of opportunity for everybody. And you would take it all away for what? To have a worse life 
to have a poverty stricken life, to take your take your freedoms from you, take freedom from your children and your grandchildren. And here is the bottom line. When it does happen, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go when your communist paradise comes to fruition? Where will you go? I have a better idea. Why don't we as God's people, those who love the Lord Jesus Christ and know that his gift of freedom and liberty was given to us as Americans, fight to preserve it and do everything we can to preserve it by his grace and pray that the Lord will give us the opportunity once more to continue on in this great land of the free. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It is no secret that in the last few decades, our nation has witnessed the unraveling of Christian moral views concerning marriage and the family and sexuality. But it isn't just the secular culture that's to blame for it. We also see theologically liberal churches and denominations questioning God's fundamental design for male and female and introducing deadly error into the minds of Americans who believe their false interpretations of Scripture. But how should those of us who love and serve Jesus Christ faithfully respond to these challenges? We're going to talk it over today with David Clausen, who serves as the Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview at the Family Research Council, and he has just written a great new publication at FRC.org called Biblical Principles for Human Sexuality, Survey of Culture, Scripture, and Church History. David, so good to have you here. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me back on, Janet. Well, it's great to talk to you again. So we have had this recent court decision, this Bostock decision at the Supreme Court, in which now you have five justices deciding that we can redefine sex, uh, we can, you know, gender identity and uh, gender orient- sexual orientation and gender identity now can be protected classes in federal civil rights law. This, we are in times that are almost off the charts in terms of weirdness, wouldn't you say? I mean, how much further is this going to descend before it reaches a bottom? Well, if we're not already at the bottom, I, that's a, just a scary thought, thinking what could be worse. Um, and referencing the Bostock decision that was decided uh, earlier this summer by the Supreme Court, um, that's one of the things that prompted this publication, um, because it, it really is true that in a, such a short amount of time, the, really the whole moral framework that undergirds Western culture has been upended, uh, whether it's beliefs about the family, marriage, human sexuality, you know, things that have been accepted and held for thousands of years, they're not only seen as dangerous, but they're seen as bigoted and subversive. Right. And that, that really is um, what has motivated, at least motivated me to, to write this publication to help Christians think through these, uh, these, these issues, marriage, human sexuality, um, because increasingly even pastors are afraid to address these issues from the pulpit. Uh, but right now when, you know, these questions are being debated in the public square, we need to be thinking uh, deeply and intelligently 
about what Scripture says and about what the Church has historically thought about these questions. That is totally right, and getting a backbone, because I think that this publication really helps remind Christians, hey, listen, you're on the same course the Church has always been on. This is not something that we've ever seen before necessarily, but when we stick to biblical principles on the design God has for marriage and family, we are on God's side. Let's talk a little bit about some of these cultural developments that you discuss in your publication that really paved the way for this moral revolution, because I think this is really instructive for a lot of Christians who are saying, what, what is going on here? You talk about the rise of urbanization that offered new opportunities for anonymity. And I think that's an interesting twist. Can you explain what that's all about and how that kind of set the stage for where we are now? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, Jan. I think, you know, a lot of people are, are looking around today thinking, you know, oh my goodness, what happened? Um, but you can't just point to Obergefell, the decision that legalized same-sex marriage in 2015. You know, we are on a the tail end of a long trajectory. And I think one of those factors is um, urbanization, which offered new opportunities for anonymity. In fact, in 1800, so just over 200 years ago, only 7% of the world's population lived in cities. Today, that's 55 percent. Wow. And so I think the, you know, the community-based accountability uh, that exists kind of in rural and less populated areas, uh, you know, there, there was kind of a, a societal check, you could say, on premarital or extramarital affairs. Um, but now, you know, with the anonymity that comes in uh, large population centers, it, it lowers the chance of discovery. It lowers the chance of exposure. And uh, it allows more opportunity for temptation. So yeah, that, that, that's one of several factors, I think, over the last couple hundred years. Obviously, the arrival of birth control, uh, the relaxation of uh, certain laws, um, the, the decreasing uh, power that Christianity has on a society, all of those things kind of stand in the background of what we've seen in the last 20 years, which has just been an acceleration of the jettison of Christian morality and the embrace of what I call the moral revolution. Right. So you take away that built-in, I would say, accountability that you might have in a small town. If I do such and such, mom's best friend will see me and tell my mom, you know, those mm-hmm. sorts of things where people know me in town. I can't get away with the same sorts of things I could get away with if I were in a city. Then you get into the issue of birth control. And I think this is really important when you're talking about the advancement in contraceptive technology. This not only enabled people to fornicate without necessarily a pregnancy resulting, but also separated sex as something that is confined to marriage in a covenant context. Why was that such an important thing in, you know, getting us to where we are now? Yeah, so, you know, ever since the time of Adam and Eve, you know, sex meant the possibility of children. And that was um, kind of a a natural... um, you could say, biological check on sexual immorality. Um, However, with the arrival of birth control, you know, in the minds of many people, they can engage in uh, sexual behavior and uh, sexual acts uh, risk-free without thinking that, you know, that children could could result from this. And and obviously we know a lot of birth controls are actually not foolproof, as many would want you to think. But uh, again, with the urbanization, the new opportunities for anonymity, and this new technology, uh, such as birth control, um, has, I think, been uh, just another factor in lowering the the moral uh, code that really has governed sexual ethics for hundreds of years. And it, it is one of the factors behind 
uh, what we see today with the uh, sexual freedom that's championed by so many on the left. Yeah, that's right. And these important Supreme Court decisions, Griswold versus Connecticut and also Eisenstein v. Baird in 1972. These were really key decisions on the way to Roe. And of course, by the time we got legalized abortion, you know, everything kind of exploded because now if you actually do have an accidental consequence, if that's what you want to call your child, you can just get rid of your child. And that's perfectly fine under American law. Yeah, that's right. So Griswold was that, that first Supreme Court case where a birth control made it to the Supreme Court. It was decided in 1965, and the other one, 1972, which legalized birth control for non-married uh, couples. And uh, it, like, you just, like you just said, then, then that paid the way for the Roe v. Wade case, which, again, <laughs> has a view of the human person as this person who has no constraints, can, kind of can do what they want, um, without the purview of, of the morality, again, that had kind of held cultures and societies and communities together uh, for centuries beforehand. And so, you know, that, again, that's why I call it a moral revolution. It's, you know, these things that you and I talk about uh, that dominate the public policy discussions we're having today haven't just been around since, you know, the last 20 years or since Obergefell was decided. These, we, we are reaping, you could say, the whirlwind of uh, a decades-long march to where we find ourselves today. Totally true. And you know what comes to mind is when you think about how technology has impacted all of these issues, you now have IVF and you have surrogacy. And these sorts of things have made it, for example, easy for two homosexual men to say, we're going to have a baby or two homosexual women, we're going to have a baby. We can redefine family because we have the technological capacity to create children outside of a man and a woman being married. Very true. And, you know, as a a student of uh, Christian ethics, I've, you know, followed a lot of this stuff. And I am afraid that the church has been kind of uh, left behind when it comes to thinking deeply about sexual ethics, when it comes to thinking about surrogacy, when it comes to thinking about IVF, when it comes to thinking about contraceptive, contraception and whether, you know, the Bible would uh, allow for some of these things. And so I think that that's where, as believers who, who believe the Bible is authoritative, we need to think deeply about these things. And again, this is where I challenge uh, pastors uh, to, to speak uh, prophetically to these things, you know, but they're going to hear about them from Hollywood. They're going to hear about them from the media. They're going to hear about them from the, the secular elites who dominate our school system. And so that's, that's my challenge, again, in this publication that we're talking about that I just wrote, is it is time, I believe, for pastors to speak to these issues. Again, not just give their opinion, but the, the fact is that Scripture speaks and to a lot of these issues. Now, you know, obviously Scripture doesn't speak to IVS and surrogacy, but it does provide a moral framework to think about the purposes and the nature of marriage and, and human sexuality. Absolutely. I want to get into it. We're going to take a break. We'll come back with David Clausen from the Family Research Council. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. 
As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. This is the story of a young mom in crisis who felt alone and desperate when finding out she was pregnant. After meeting with the counselors at Preborn and seeing her baby on an ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat, she knew that life was the best choice. My mind changed completely from the abortion the first time that I visited. It's a fact. When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times, she'll choose life for her baby. I know God won't have wanted me to just throw out my blessings like that. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States. One ultrasound costs just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. Would you please consider helping us to support Preborn and the cause for life? To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, I'm really glad to see this publication just out from David Clawson at the Family Research Council, where he serves as Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview. This publication at FRC.org is called Biblical Principles for Human Sexuality, Survey of Culture, Scripture, and Church History. We have got to do a fantastic job as Christians in standing for God's design for male and female, marriage, the family, and human sexuality. One of the things that we were talking about a little bit, David, before we went to the last break was all of these milestones along the way of the sexual revolution that have brought us to where we are now. But you also, and I want to touch on this before we get into some of what scripture has to say about all of this, this fourth development you mentioned is Christianity's loss of cultural influence. That along the way, as all these things were happening, and I think a lot of us feel like this, Christians yelling into the wind, hey, wait a minute, don't seem to be listened to very much. It's like, eh, you're you're archaic, you're kind of caveman, you guys don't really matter anymore. Why? Why, why Why do we see this happening? Well, that's absolutely what we've been seeing, Janet, and I think Europe's a great example of what happens when the church loses its influence. They're, you know, 20, 50 years down the road from where we are right now, but pollsters tell us right now that 7%, only 7% of Americans actually have a biblical worldview, which increasingly means less and less people understand basic Christian convictions, which means that what the Bible teaches about men and women, the exclusivity and permanence of marriage, uh, God's design and purpose for sex, those are increasingly seen as strange. Um, and then you have whole denominations, uh, theologically liberal denominations, uh, that had for generations held the line on biblical sexuality completely cave. And so I think that's what, you know, when you see so few Christians understand what the Bible teaches uh, about these issues, 
it's easy for uh, Christians to be swayed by what they're hearing on TV and what they're hearing in the media. And um, it's unfortunate, but I, I think one of the reasons we've seen such a um, upending of biblical morality in this country is that so few people actually know what the Bible teaches about uh, issues related to human sexuality. Right. That's totally true. And that's why we're seeing a lot more churches and denominations fall on this issue and get things wrong and actually promote serious error to their congregations when they should be lifting up the Word of God. Let's talk about some of these key passages that really define sexuality and marriage. Uh, let's talk about marriage, for example. Genesis 1 and 2, obviously, later out the foundation for marriage. Why are these important verses and important passages for us to really wrap our heads around? Uh, great question, Janet. So yeah, Genesis 1 and 2, um, first two chapters of the Bible really lays out God's design and God's plan for marriage. And it's, you know, really neat to think about that marriage is a pre-fall reality. Uh, the man's fall into sin happens in Genesis 3, but marriage is instituted in Genesis 1 and 2. And what we learn from those early patches, passages is that marriage is a permanent, exclusive, sacred covenant that's created by God. It's built into the very fabric um, of creation. And uh, I think that one of the most important verses to understand what the Bible teaches about marriage is Genesis 2, 24 through 25, which says uh, that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And what's really interesting is that when you fast forward to the New Testament, whenever Jesus, whenever Paul uh, reflects and talks and teaches about marriage, they constantly and repeatedly uh, quote uh, verbatim, Genesis 2, 24 through 25. And so I think that's uh, an important verse for any Christian wanting to formulate a theology of marriage uh, to return to again and again, uh, because that's what Jesus did. Well, right. And it's very clear who is to get married, a man and a woman, for multiple reasons. But those two verses, those passages, chapters in Scripture are very instructive, I think, if you go back and just read them and say, well, wait a minute, why did God create a woman to be a helper to the man and he came out of uh, she came out of his side and got you know all of the basics that we all learned in Sunday school I, I think bear repeating because I think people are so inundated with this LGBT ideology that sometimes we forget what we already know. Well, that's absolutely true. So we, we, we need to reiterate this time and time again, because, again, this is what Jesus and Paul did. Uh, when Jesus was talking about marriage in Matthew 19, verse 6, he, he quotes Genesis 2:24, and he, he says uh, that the man and the woman, they're no longer two, but one flesh, speaking about this one flesh union uh, between a husband and a wife uh, that is unitive, that has procreative potential, um, and, and Scripture is just so clear about this, and it teaches, uh, you know, ultimately for us who do follow Jesus, that, that this marriage relationship ultimately uh, represents the relationship that Jesus has with his bride, the church. Yes. Uh, and so marriage is ultimately a beautiful picture of the gospel, which is how we can be uh, reunited uh, with God and have a relationship with him. So, so the marriage imagery in Scripture is absolutely vital to understanding uh, Scripture at large, really. Well, that's right. And then, of course, we have all the passages in Scripture that condemn homosexuality as an abomination. 
no matter how much they twist those passages, there they are. And yet I hear a lot from these activists, well, Jesus never addressed homosexuality, so clearly Jesus doesn't mind. I mean, these sorts of things, as you mentioned before, Jesus continually goes back and references the early passages that you mentioned in Genesis, but also he upheld the Old Testament law. I mean, he is God and he is the word of God and by him all things were created. He is the second person of the Trinity. So clearly the Old Testament is his word as much as the New Testament is. Absolutely. Uh, Jesus is absolutely clear. First of all, the New Testament is clear. Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 explicitly condemns homosexuality as a departure from God's design for sexuality. And yes, while Jesus doesn't explicitly talk about homosexuality, he uh, clearly teaches and reaffirms the Old Testament's teaching on marriage. And as an old, as a first century Jew, uh, he clearly understood what the Old Testament taught uh, about marriage. He reaffirmed the creation pattern for marriage. Uh, the one passage I talk about in the publication is uh, in Mark 10, when Jesus was actually questioned about divorce. And what does he do? He again responds by quoting Old Testament scripture and says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Yes. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Uh, so according to Jesus, married couples, they, they shouldn't divorce because marriage is that one flesh relationship that one man and one woman enter into. And so the idea that Jesus would countenance a departure from an Old Testament scripture clearly, clearly teaches is just simply a, not a faithful reading of the text and one that no interpreter of scripture has held to uh, other than the last couple of years when you have revisionists trying to reinterpret scripture to conform uh, to culture's new standards for morality. Exactly. That is an excellent point. And this kind of goes along with what you also bring up in your publication, which is that the church has history on its side. This is new. I mean, prior to the year 2000, nobody ever suggested a concept of gay marriage. Even when homosexuality has, you know, proliferated throughout history at various times. Nobody was saying we should allow two men to get married in the way that a man and woman can get married. So how do you encourage biblically faithful Christians right now in this era that, you know what, you talk about being on the right side of history, biblically faithful Christians are on the right side of history. That's absolutely right, Janet. And that's one of the things in this new publication that people can find at frc.org slash worldview that I spent some time just studying the old text of the church. Um, but you have people, Tertullian, uh, Augustine, Origen, um, every leader of the early church explicitly explaining what they believed marriage was and what human sexuality was. And so for Christians who might be discouraged uh, that they're in the minority, they're really not. They're standing in a long line of faithful believers who have gone before them 2,000 years in the Christian tradition who have taught that marriage is the relationship between a man and a woman, that it points to the relationship with Jesus and his church. And I think that there's just a lot of confidence, especially those of us in the Protestant tradition who might not be as connected to our uh, tradition, uh, to realize that the church has had one voice when it comes to marriage and sexuality. Yep. Absolutely. How important is it, would you say, David, for pastors to get into the pulpit and preach this, take these passages and preach about this to strengthen the church at an hour like we're facing? It's a matter of faithfulness. Um, if the Bible speaks to these issues, pastors, I believe, are obligated to speak to them very clearly. And again, it's not getting in the pulpit and giving your own opinion. It's giving a thus saith the Lord. And if Scripture speaks to these issues, uh, we as followers of Jesus must speak to them clearly as well.
Very good. Thus saith the Lord. That's what we need for sure. And you can be helped out by checking out the Family Research Council publication authored here by David Clausen called Biblical Principles for Human Sexuality, Survey of Culture, Scripture, and Church History. FRC.org slash, is it Worldview, David, people should look at? Slash Worldview. Okay, very good. FRC.org slash Worldview, and you can read it for yourself. Just excellent material. So helpful. If you are a pastor, this will really help you go back and bring this important biblical data to your congregation and strengthen them in the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. David Clausen, thank you so much for being here. It was a delight to talk to you again and God bless you for doing this great work. God bless. Thank you so much, Janet. Oh, you bet. Thanks a lot, David, for being here. And thank you for listening to Janet Meffer today. It's a privilege to be with you every single day. We really appreciate you tuning in and hope you'll do so next time. God bless you. We'll see you then.